Hi everyone, Sarah Schaefer here. Thanks for checking out Art History Happy Hour. The episode that follows is back from when our podcast was called State of the Arts, and you can now find our episode blog and other resources, including a link to our Patreon page at arthistoryhappyhour.com. Welcome back to State of the Arts, the podcast that explores how art and its history shape our world today. My name is Tina Rivers-Ryan. And I'm Sarah Schaefer. As with our recent episode about four different places here in New York that are off the beaten path that you might want to check out, uh, this episode was motivated by thinking about the fact that it's the summer and it's one of the high tourist seasons here in the city and a lot of people are coming in from out of town. When tourists come to town, uh, usually one of the things they're going to have to figure out is how to navigate New York's system of public transit, which is quite complex and also um, historical. Of course, the heart of New York City's subway system is Grand Central, and it's the center not in the sense that uh, all the trains converge there, although a number of trains, uh, train lines do converge at Grand Central, but it's the symbolic heart. Um, it was completed in 1913. And so for more than 100 years, it's been the grandest, um, the busiest of our of our subway stations. It is also not only a subway station, but a terminal for regional railroads. So the Metro North system, as it's called, um, that goes uh, to places up along the Hudson River, um, Westchester, places like that. Um, they, uh, all those trains come into Grand Central. So it is a very busy transit hub here in New York, especially for people who live out in the suburbs. And a lot of people come to Grand Central not only for commuting, but also just to see it as a tourist destination in and of itself because of the architecture, which I want to talk more about. While Grand Central is a very important hub for commuters um, and people who live here in the city and outside of it alike, it's actually reduced in scale from its former role when it served as the terminal for people traveling as far away as Detroit and Chicago. So it's a, not an interstate transit hub the way that it used to be. And in fact, um, because of that, we might say that the the meaning of Grand Central has transformed a little bit, that whereas once it was this uh, major uh, interstate hub, that now it's as much about stopping and taking in the view and being where you are and savoring the moment as it is about getting from one place to another. And this is something that was pointed out in a very astute New Yorker article um, a couple of years ago on the occasion of the renovation of Grand Central. So we wanted to stop and take a moment to uh, talk about why it is that Grand Central is so important historically, and also why it is that now we are so drawn to it, not only as commuters, but as tourists, and why it is an architectural monument that invites our contemplation, that invites us to stop and to have an aesthetic experience in the middle of our commute or in the middle of our um, wandering around the city. Really the best way to get a sense of how the mass transit system works today is to go and experience, go and ride the subway, go and ride the buses. Uh, if you're not familiar with them, if you're not from New York or have spent a lot of time in New York, I definitely recommend going and Googling the many resources that exist pertaining to appropriate subway etiquette. It's 
one of the one of my biggest pet peeves when people don't pay attention to their surroundings and the proper etiquette when riding the subway. Think things so simple as just stepping away from the doors when people are trying to get on and off just makes things go more quickly. Anyway, that aside, as I said, the best way to really experience uh, the transportation system is by actually doing it. But in addition to actually taking the subway, uh, a great resource to learn about its history. Uh, is actually the Transit Museum, the New York City uh, Transit Museum, which is located in downtown Brooklyn, actually not that far from where Tina lives, uh, in an underground decommissioned subway station that was built in 1936. This museum tells the history of the New York City transportation system at large, but it really does focus primarily on the subway system, its history, its aesthetics, the architecture, the engineering. It opened uh, as the New York City Transit Exhibit as part of the U.S. Bicentennial celebrations of 1976. So it cost one subway token to enter and was really only meant to be a temporary exhibition, lasting from the 4th of July 1976 uh, to Labor Day of that year, just a few months. But it proved to be so popular that... It just kept going and was eventually turned into a permanent museum. You can really experience the evolution of subway transportation through its material remains, which are all on view in this museum. Now, going back and talking about subway history a little bit, the major period of, of the subway construction in New York City was right around the turn of the 20th century, and the first line opened in 1904. There was a second phase of construction around 1910 and a third phase in the 1930s. Architectural designs and trends of the day are very evident in these subway stations. And it's kind of interesting. If you go to different subway stations, you can often see different styles in the ways that the signs are designed. Uh, the, 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 the actual architecture of the subway stations are very indicative of the architectural trends of the the point in which they were created. For example, those that were built in the earliest phases, the earliest two phases, are much more ornate. They were built at a time when architectural styles like the Beaux-Arts style, which Tina talked about in our episode on uh, our favorite spots in New York, so Beaux-Arts style and also the arts and crafts design style. These are, are very ornate, kind of organic styles. By the time you get to the 30s, that third phase of construction, which was when the, the station in which the Transit Museum is located, it, it was at that time that that station was built, design had become much more simple, much more minimal, much more utilitarian, much less ornate than those earlier uh, phases. So the Court Street Station, uh, where the Transit Museum is located, uh, was intended to be the beginning of a Second Avenue subway line. And those of you who are from New York, live in New York, or are, are familiar with the subway today, you'll know that they're still trying to build a Second Avenue subway line. Uh, I think, didn't they break ground on that a couple years ago? And it's just there's really no sense of when or if it will ever actually be finished. The city has tried to do it many times before. But at least they've actually like been digging and yeah, True. They're, they're working on it. So. Yeah. The Court Street Station was intended to be a part of this new 2nd Avenue line, it was going to extend off of what is today the AC line from the Rockaways. 
it was part of the independent subway system, or IND, which opened its first lines in 1932. This was the first, the IND was the first city-owned and operated system. Prior to that point, the, the subway was, the subway consisted of two privately owned system, the Interborough Rapid Transit Company, or IRT, and the Brooklyn Rapid Transit Company, which later became the Brooklyn Manhattan Transit Corporation, or the BMT. Now the subway system is all owned and operated by the city. You can use one card, one metro card for any line, uh, and the Numbered lines, so for example, the one, two, three trains were initially part of the IRT lines, while the lettered lines, like the A, B, C, and D trains, were part of the BMT and IND lines. Now, trains today can only run on one or other type of the line, but never on both. So you could see potentially a four train on the one line, but you could never see a four train on the A line. It just The trains are different sizes. They, they are not built to be on both tracks. It has never occurred to me that I have never seen that. Yeah. Like, I don't bat an eye when I, like, yesterday, actually, I was on an A train that suddenly ran on the F line for right. a little bit, and I was like, eh. Right. But, but it, you would never see a one train on the it, A line. It didn't phase me, whereas if, yeah, where it, I couldn't have articulated why, but yeah, if they were like, oh, the A train's running on the two line, I would have been like, what? 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 <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. So uh, one really great thing that the transit um, museum does, and which I actually haven't taken a part of, and I don't know if I'll be able to before I move, um, is they'll run these things called nostalgia trains. Um, there are these trains that consist of some of their preserved cars from different points in their in their history, and you can really see when you can see this when you go to the museum, of course, but you could actually ride the train and see the design details that change the fact that um, in the earliest subway cars, uh, the seats were basically sort of like wicker. Um, and uh, a lot of the seats were facing each other. It was totally um, uh, acceptable and common for people to have conversations with, with strangers on the subway. Um, now, today, everyone wears headphones or reads a book or reads a Kindle or newspaper or something. And, and um, well, at least I don't talk to people on the subway. And I don't know many people who do. Um, so you could ride one of these nostalgia trains that come out. Usually there's... Um, they, they run them uh, around the holidays, around um, uh, November and December. I think they do them occasionally also with um, the opening of the baseball season. Uh, and what I really like about this idea is that it's... You, you, I mean, you could walk through the train and, and see the different evolution as it's going through the line. And it really connects it to that experience of riding the subway, which is so um, so central to the life of, of people who live in New York and people who come to visit. Um, and it's one of my favorite parts of really any city is the, the public transportation system. That's sort of the thing I, I get to know and like to explore first. Um, I mean, the first time I went to Paris, my, my friend and I made it our mission to ride every single metro line um, before we left and we accomplished that. So the Transit Museum is a great place 
to to do that to get experience that um the, the changes over the course of the subway history what people needed what they were looking for why this uh massive uh basically public works project ultimately came to fruition and and how it's able to stay so successful how it's able to sort of successfully transport people so many people um every day while Sarah has been talking about the history, the fascinating history of the subway system, I'm going to talk about Grand Central Terminal now. And I want to be clear, I'm talking about Grand Central Terminal, not Grand Central Station. Grand Central Station is the station under Grand Central that connects to the subway system. Grand Central Terminal is the terminal above the station that services the commuter rail lines and used to service the rail lines that went across states out to the west. So um, in terms of the name, you can tell the difference because Grand Central Terminal is where those long-distance trains terminate, whereas Grand Central Station is merely a station along the way of longer routes for the subway trains. So there are no subway trains that terminate at Grand Central. Um, They all pass through on their way to other points. Grand Central Terminal was constructed by the New York Central Railroad. All of the trains that service Grand Central Terminal now are no longer operated by private railroad companies. They're operated by uh, governmental authority, um, the Metro North um, Transit System But it was originally built by uh, the New York Central Railroad. And since this was a privately owned and operated company, obviously they're very invested um, not in, uh, for example, saving taxpayer dollars, but in displaying how powerful and profitable the company is through architecture. And that's one of the reasons that Grand Central is so grand. Um, It opened on February 2nd, 1913. Um, It had only been conceived of just a few years prior, and I'll get to that history in a second, but first, some statistics. It is the largest train station in the world, if you measure by the number of tracks and platforms. So it has 63 tracks and 45 platforms. The terminal covers 49 acres. So that goes from 42nd Street to 97th Street. And of course, all that's underground. Um, there are 33 miles of track that run along the tunnels between those two streets. The Grand Concourse itself, which is the giant structure uh, where all of the platforms for these trains meet, is 270 feet long, 120 feet wide, and 125 feet high. So if you take these measurements um, on the whole, this space, the 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 concourse itself the the cavity of the concourse is actually larger than the nave of the cathedral of notre dame de paris the basement of grand central terminal is the deepest basement in new york city although i wonder this information comes from um before uh the new projects at ground zero were completed so i'm not sure if that's still the case given the freedom towers construction but anyway it's one of the deepest basements in new york city if not the deepest basement as sarah mentioned before Our public transit systems in New York see a very high volume of traffic, and just as with the subway system, the trains of Grand Central Terminal are equally busy. Around 700,000 people pass through Grand Central Terminal every day. 
about 200,000 of those are visitors, making Grand Central the second most popular tourist attraction in the city. Uh, the rest are um, basically there to use the trains, although there are also quite a number of people who go there to have lunch. So uh, we will talk more about the, the cafeteria facility in the basement, which is a result of the most recent renovations um, a little bit later. As I mentioned earlier, Grand Central Terminal was built by the New York Central Railroad Company. Um, just to give you a sense of uh, the time period, we're talking about the very beginning of the 20th century when you had uh, Cornelius Vanderbilt's two grandsons sitting on the board, along with William Rockefeller and J.P. Morgan. So <laughs> That's quite a powerhouse. Yeah. But this is, I mean, this is why Congress like investigated and set up like antitrust laws and stuff right. in the teens is because you basically had these same 20 families and they all sat on the boards of each other's companies, right? right? So this is a Vanderbilt company and people on the boards are Rockefeller and Morgans. And right. then you go over and look at Morgan's company and people on the board are Vanderbilt's and Rockefeller's and, right. and so on and so forth. So um, there was already a terminal for the New York Central Railroad Company at the site of Grand Central. And the trains, this is very important, that the trains that went in and out of that terminal were your old-fashioned um, coal-powered trains. So these are trains that are consuming a lot of fossil fuel and belching a lot of smoke. And so the terminals that these trains pulled into obviously needed to be above ground so that there could be ventilation to get you know, as much of that smoke as possible to dissipate. But they were still very loud, noisy, uh, polluted environments. It was one of um, the railroad's engineers, in fact, its chief engineer, a guy by the name of William Wilgus, who came up with the idea of radically transforming not only the terminal, but also the train system. Um, in 1902, there was a fatal crash um, while a train was exiting the Park Avenue terminal when basically the exiting train rammed into the back of another train and 15 people were killed. And this gave him the idea of, of really just starting from scratch, basically, with the train system. What Wilgus did is he wrote a letter to the board of the railroad proposing this new idea. And the idea would be to change the trains over from coal power trains to electric trains. And once you did that, then there was no reason to have a terminal above ground anymore. Trains don't emit any air pollution. They don't emit any any smoke or steam. So you can actually just have the trains running underground instead of overground. And Wilgus uh, immediately realized uh, one of the universal truths in New York City, uh, one of the timeless truths of New York City, which is that real estate here has always been at a premium because it is an island. And so if the terminal didn't need to be above ground, suddenly New York Central Rail became owners of acres and acres and acres of Manhattan real estate that was free for development. So while what he was proposing was going to cost them a lot of money, um, basically, you know, a couple of years worth of revenue for the railroad. Um, he was also proposing a way for them to, in fact, generate even more income um, by leasing the property that they owned. And this is basically the origins of the neighborhood that we associate, you know, around Park Avenue in the 40s and North. Um, all of that was developed as a whole, as a kind of urban planning project by the New York Central when they built Grand Central. Notice that they're still significantly far east of Fifth Avenue, where all of these robber barons would have been living. 
Right, exactly. So, so Park Avenue was not originally, um, or you know, this far east was not originally a desirable place to live because you had the trains coming in and out. But once those trains go underground, then it becomes developed into a much ritzier area. And in fact, this relates to a piece of trivia I was going to bring up later, which is that the east side of Grand Central Concourse, um, they built a balcony, but they never bothered building any stairs. The idea was was that um, this building would connect to you know the part of new york to the east of grand central concourse but the problem was at the time they built grand central there wasn't any um it was basically at the eastern perimeter of town um not much else uh at least nothing you know well to do um was over was over there so the there's two staircases now in grand central um up to the balcony level on the west and the east but the east was only built in the 90s actually um and something pretty cool that they did was a they made it almost a perfect mirror replica of the staircase on the west, but with a very slight difference. The east staircase is one inch smaller, and the engravings are relatively plain compared to those on the west side, which is much more ornate. Um, if you look at the details, it's actually modeled after the grand staircase in the Paris Opera, or Opera. <laughs> um, and the reason that they made these differences are to indicate to future archaeologists basically that these two staircases were in fact built at different times so when my students push back and they say oh well there's no way that an artist or an architect put that amount of thought into the project and that what we're reading out of it clearly wasn't deliberate um this just goes to show that in fact architects are capable and artists alike are perfectly capable of being very sophisticated in how they think about projects. And in the case of Grand Central, they were actually thinking about, you know, like in millennia from now when there's no records and they don't know how this thing was constructed, they'll be able to look and to notice that the staircases are slightly different and to understand um, that they were built at different times, just as we do when we go back and excavate um, ancient ruins now. It's still kind of the case that east of Grand Central, it's still a pretty sleepy part of Manhattan. And I think that's... uh... I mean, it has partially to do with the lack of the Second Avenue subway. There's just there's not easy access to transportation east of Lexington, which is what the four five six runs along. Um, and so, the further east you get in Manhattan, once you get to like uh, Yorkville, there in the in the eighties along the the East River, it's almost it almost seems kind of suburban. Yeah. So um, at the time that. Um the railroad decides that they're going to go ahead with Wilgus's plan. They are eyeing over on the west side of town a new structure that is going up that is the crown jewel of the Pennsylvania Railroad. And this, of course, is Penn Station, which was built between 1904 and 1910. That railroad company had also decided to electrify, though for different reasons. Um, they had been sort of the the lesser of the two rail companies because they did not have a terminal in Manhattan. If you were taking the Pennsylvania Railroad, you could only get as far as New Jersey. And at that point, you would have to transfer to a ferry to get into Manhattan. They couldn't figure out a way to build or to finance a bridge over the Hudson River into Manhattan. The other way to get over the river is to go under it. But in order to go under it, of course, you need your trains to be electric. So the Pennsylvania Railroad goes electric and then builds a terminal for their trains coming under the Hudson to arrive at, and that is Penn Station. Now, Penn Station um, is a very touchy subject for those of us who are lovers of New York or lovers of architecture. It was widely um, 
uh, described as really one of the most beautiful buildings, most beautiful structures in New York of the 20th century. It was designed by the very noted firm McKim, Mead & White, which I believe we've actually mentioned before on our podcast. They're the a firm that designed Columbia's campus, so we're very familiar with their architectural style. Um, the front of it was a colonnaded facade in pink granite. Um, it was just supposed to be absolutely gorgeous. Notice that I'm using the past tense. This is, of course, because, or not of course, but as some of you might know, Penn Station was torn down um, in the 1960s, and that was basically considered um, one of the greatest travesties to hit the city, that we lost this incredibly beautiful, um, somewhat historic structure. And I don't think it would have been so painful if it had been replaced with anything that wasn't the current Penn Station, which is um, an abomination. And unbelievably confusing to navigate. And hideously ugly. Mm -hmm. While Penn Station, um, again, which was completed in 1910, was universally described as um, very beautiful, sort of a modern uh, marvel, the terminal that the New York Rail Company, New York Central, was planning completely blew it out of the water in terms of scale. So just to give you some numbers to make the comparison, whereas Penn Station had 28 acres, Grand Central has 70 Penn Station had 16 miles of rails, Grand Central 32. Penn Station had 21 tracks, Grand Central more than double, 46. Penn Station had 11 platforms, Grand Central has 30. And twice the masonry and steel that were used to build Penn Station were used to build Grand Central. So the scale of this thing, is I mean, Grand Central is just so much more massive than Penn Station was. Not the current Penn Station, but the former one. Aside from being very large, um, there are a couple more things about the plan of of Grand Central that set it apart from other terminals around the world. Um, One is the fact that it has two levels. Now, again, remember, since we don't need to have giant outdoor train sheds for um, these steam trains to come in, we can actually put train tracks on top of each other with one under the other. That's now an okay thing to do once your trains are electric. So the top level was for long-distance trains, so ones going across the country, while the lower levels were were for the commuter trains, which now are the only trains that come into Grand Central. Um, There are some amazing ads for long-distance trains that you can see if you look at uh, historical copies of the New York Times, which you can do online, actually. Um, There was the Wolverine to Detroit and to Chicago, for example, which left New York at 5 p.m., arrived in Detroit at 7.15 a.m., and Chicago at 2 p.m. That schedule has not improved, and it probably takes a lot longer, actually, because of all the freight traffic in the Midwest. I know this from experience. Yeah, and so that's sort of amazing. And remember, this is also a time before there was transcontinental airplane service. I mean, there wasn't any commercial airplane service, really. So... Um, so this is, uh, uh, you know, the trains that we're talking about here were really the only way for people to get around, which is another reason that this terminal was so important. Um, in addition to being a bi-level terminal, it was also ingenious because it was the first terminal to not have any stairs. And it's kind of amazing to think that it took people, modern people, this long to figure that out. Um, The ancient Romans, for example, if you look at the Colosseum, figured out that the best way for people to move between levels is on ramps. Um, And especially if they're carrying things like luggage with them, uh, that's a pretty smart thing to do. So uh, also very smart is the commuter trains are on the lower level because those are the people who don't have that much luggage, if any, so they can just get downstairs. Um, on the ramps uh, very easily. The passengers who were traveling the longer distance, who had lots of 
um, you know, heavy um, train cases with them, they would be on the upper level platforms and they could basically um, get out of their carriage at street level, roll their luggage into Grand Central and roll right onto the train without ever having to change elevation. But again, if you did have to go downstairs and you had luggage with you, you wouldn't have to take any stairs. You just walk down a series of ramps down to the train. Um, and so in the New York Times, the day that it opened, there were um, tons of articles about the train station. And one of them um, had the headline, first great stairless railway terminal in history. Um, it's a very New York headline. The things that amaze us. Yeah. The construction itself of this terminal, I mean, they put a lot of thought into the plan. Um, the construction also was a massive undertaking because the terminal had to continue operating as a train terminal. Um, and they were making this transition, not only building a new structure, but, uh, you know, not only building a new structure around the train terminal, but actually totally changing the trains that were running on the track. So it was really complex. It took 10 years and about $80 million. Um, and I don't know the most recent ballpark, but I would say that's roughly $2 billion um, today. In part because the plans for Grand Central Terminal were so novel, the actual construction of the terminal was a huge undertaking. And on top of that, you had to deal with the fact that the terminal was still in use during construction. They couldn't just shut it down for all of those years. So um, it ended up taking 10 years by the time they were done and about $80 million, which in at least the 1990s was converted into about $2 billion dollars. The excavation in order to build the terminal in some places goes as deep as 10 stories down. At its peak, they had about 10,000 workers a day working on site. And the terminal alone, so not the entire rail yard, which again goes up to the 90s, but the terminal alone at 42nd Street used two and a half times the steel in the Eiffel Tower. So very expensive, very involved project. And just to put that into context, the Eiffel Tower was basically showcased and debuted in 1889, so only 20 20 years years later. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, when the terminal opened again, which was in 1913, it was too great a claim. Maybe not the sort of shining jewel that Penn Station was, um, but definitely known for its opulence. If what the New York Central Rail was going for was um, uh, to showcase that they were, in fact, you know, the the number one line in town. They were the Yankees, not the Mets. They were the Giants, not the Jets. They certainly pulled it off. When it opened, all of the articles talked about how opulent it was and all of the services that it provided. It was all about the passenger's comfort. So there was a separate women's waiting room with maids. There was a ladies' shoe polishing room. Uh, staffed by, quote, colored girls in neat blue liveries. There was a telephone room, um, a hair salon for women, a private barbershop for men, as well as a public barbershop for men. And perhaps most famously, there was a special uh, routine when they had passengers arriving from Chicago via the most luxurious special train in America, which was the 20th Century Limited. And so when the 20th Century Limited arrived, they would roll out a special red carpet. And so this is actually where rolling out the red carpet comes from. It comes from Grand Central. To return us to 1913, uh, when Grand Central opened, another thing that made the, the terminal so opulent 
was the ornamentation. And we have to remember that this is, you know, sort of the tail end of the Gilded Age. And Grand Central was literally gilded. There were um, gold-plated nickel chandeliers all around the sides of Grand Concourse. And they're still there today. Um, Each one weighs 2,500 pounds, is 11 feet wide, and has 144 light bulbs. And if you look at the chandeliers in Grand Central, you'll notice that all of the light bulbs are naked. They're just in their fixtures. They're in their sockets. They're not covered over by any shade. Um, and this is basically a way of Grand Central, uh, or rather of the New York Central Railroad, advertising to you, reminding you that their trains were electric and that this terminal is predicated upon the transition from steam to electricity for coal to electricity so those bulbs just would have been i mean in 1913 we also have to remember like not everyone has electricity yet i mean edison patented his bulb in like 88 i think so i mean this is a very new thing uh not the average person would not have even the people who you know were privileged enough to be taking the commuter rail or the long distance rails uh you know they they didn't necessarily have electricity in their house so you could come to grand central and marvel at these blazing electric bulbs Another thing you find with the ornamentation all around Grand Central is the symbolism of the acorn. Um, this relates to the sort of family motto that the Vanderbilts created for themselves. Um, the acorn, of course, grows into the mighty oak. And so this represents the the history of the Vanderbilt family. And also the oak has all of these branching leaves. And so you can think of the family itself as being like an oak tree. Or you can think of the railway system that they controlled as being like another um, mighty branching tree. In terms of the architectural style, I mean, I think a lot of people, when you're you know not that familiar with looking at or talking about architecture... You go into Grand Central Terminal and you look at things like the chandeliers and the ceiling, which I'll talk about in a minute, and you're really wowed. But not enough people, I think, really know how to look at the architecture itself. So I want to talk about that. Um, Again, Grand Central Terminal is built in this Beaux-Arts style. I'm saying again because Sarah referenced it earlier in this episode and we referenced it at this point in a couple different episodes. It's just a very important architectural style. Um, especially here in America and especially in New York. I won't go into the major history or principles of Beaux-Arts, but I will say that some of the important characteristics that you see at Grand Central are this emphasis on uh, symmetry, on a kind of um, regularity, on rectangularity, on um, a sort of classical architectural vocabulary. So basically the concourse is a big rectangular box and the facade of it is structured so that it looks pretty Greco-Roman. So you have all of these columns and then they're topped um, with sculptural decoration uh, at the very top of the facade. So along with the main branch of the New York Public Library and also the Metropolitan Museum of Art, all of which go up at around the same time, Grand Central Terminal is one of the great examples of this particular kind of architectural style here in New York. If you do have the ability to go to Grand Central, then um, I would make sure that you pay attention to the way that the architects have used elements such as line and material in order to create a very grand space in the main concourse and how they then modulate your experience as you transition from that grand space, say if you're going from the train outside, how they transition you then into Vanderbilt Hall, which was traditionally the um, the waiting room for the long distance train passengers, and now is like an event space that you have to book for your wedding like five years in advance. 
Um, that's not an exaggeration, actually. It is about five-year waiting list. Um, and then from there, you go out onto the street in New York. So look at the way that the architecture um, gradually sort of reduces in scale, um, sort of funneling you out in a way into the city. Um, look at the way that the the vertical lines draw your eye upward and make you realize the height of the space, but how all of that is always balanced by these horizontal elements like the windows, the bottoms of the windows, or the balconies. So even though it's a very big and vast space, it always feels like it's in proportion. And this is a very classical way of thinking about architecture, that you can't let any one um, element dominate, right? That you always need things to sort of be in a kind of balance. And particularly you're, you want to achieve a kind of balance that seems, um, kind of to be derived from, a, a classical understanding of nature. So for example, bilateral symmetry, which derives from the human form. So grand, grand central, when you look at it on the outside and when you're in the grand concourse on the inside, you do have that symmetry, at least now that we have a staircase on the east as well as the west side. Um, or, you know, the the idea that the height of the building is in a certain proportion with the length that um, I'm guessing roughly corresponds to the golden ratio, which the Greeks were known for having used that 1 to 1. 1.6, um, which, again, is a ratio that derives actually from the human form. You see all of these principles at Grand Central. So, so try to keep your eye out for them if you get a chance to go. Now, what you probably will be most awed by is the ceiling. And in fact, the the painted mural ceiling was not supposed to be a permanent fixture. They were going to put in a skylight. That never happened. The ceiling that we have was designed by a French artist, and it includes um, a couple dozen electric light bulbs that function as stars in a night sky. And there's about um, 2,500 stars, actually. So only, you know, a handful of them are actually illuminated by lights. And when you look up, you see a number of different constellations, um, Gemini, Taurus, Cancer. It's basically showing you how the sky looks from the Mediterranean um, from October to March. And it's had been argued or it's been, you know, sort of rumored that the sky is painted backwards and that the Vanderbilt said that basically um, the sky was painted um, from God's vantage point looking down rather than from the human vantage point looking up. And of course, that would imply something about how the Vanderbilt, who had built that space, thought themselves to be um, sort of uh, privileged enough to have the same vantage point as God, perhaps. But I think all of this is sort of rumor. The ceiling now is um, really beautiful and luminous. Uh, it's got this beautiful blue tone, and that's thanks to a restoration that happened in the 1990s. So um, this is when um, they went in, sort of the mid-90s, went in and cleaned the ceiling. And it was a very low-tech operation. They took off decades of residue from pollution, which came from, remember, not the trains, because the trains are electric, but from all sort of the dirt that came in with them from their trips overland, as well as from all the cigarette smoking that we used to do indoors. So... um, very low-tech cleaning. They took away all of that suit and pollution using 6,500 cotton rags and 1,500 gallons of water and a really mild cleaning agent. This is basically the exact same process that they use to clean the Sistine ceiling. So they just get up there with a wet rag and very gently brush um, the dirt off, basically, is what happened. Um, if you look in one corner of the ceiling, and I first of all have to give a hat tip to my husband, a native New Yorker, who pointed this out to me first, 
there is one tiny black spot in the ceiling. It almost looks like a black brick that's set into the ceiling. These are a few square inches that they didn't clean just so you could appreciate the difference. And it literally is like night and day. It's like a blue sky and then a black brick. And it's amazing to think that that whole ceiling used to be that color. Um, It really does just look solid black basically from standing on the floor of the concourse. If you walk outside the building through Vanderbilt Hall and look at the facade, you'll notice that there is some pretty incredible sculptural decoration. So I want to talk about that really quickly for a second. Along with the ceiling um, and the sculpture, those are sort of the two um, most notable artistic additions to Grand Central, um, aside from the architecture itself. So the sculpture, um, it's together, it's a big tableau called Transportation. It's by an artist named uh, Jules-Félix Couton. Um, who um, also designed a sculpture that's on the Alexander III Bridge in Paris, Um, sort of a famous sculpture if you've ever been there. Um, It is carved out of Indiana limestone. Um, uh, It's about 1,500 tons. The sculpture is 50 feet tall, 60 feet wide. Uh, It's made of several figures. The center figure is Mercury, who is the messenger god um, and the god of speed. And he's flanked by uh, Athena or Minerva, the goddess of wisdom, and the other side, Hercules, the, you know, demigod of of strength. So you always have to think when you see sculpture in a place like this, what is the program? In other words, what is the agenda? What's the message that they're trying to tell you by picking these people? Well, okay, you have Mercury in the middle, that seems pretty obvious. This is a place devoted to transportation. And of course, New York Central Rail wants to remind you that they get you from A to B quick, just like, you know, Mercury with his um, winged sandals. sandals. Thank you, winged sandals. But why Minerva and why Hercules? Well, what other attributes are they claiming here? Well, they're claiming wisdom and they're claiming strength. And certainly in order to build a structure like the Grand Central Concourse, you would need both of those things. On top of Mercury is a clock, or I should say rather above Mercury is a clock that is 13 feet in diameter and is the biggest example of Tiffany stained glass in the world. And I don't even know how many New Yorkers realize that. I mean, this is the thing about being in New York is you become totally immune. I mean, you just have gems like this all around you. Um, Other cities, I think, you know, if they had the biggest Tiffany stained glass in the world, it would be the first thing you knew about them. But here in New York, it's like, you know, number 135 on the list of things to see or something. So you have um, this giant clock still run by the original 1913 motor, which I think is incredible. Another fun tidbit relating to the notion of clocks in Grand Central is that all of the clocks in Grand Central are set by the atomic clock. um, And they... uh, basically are accurate to a a ridiculous degree but of course clocks trains arriving and departing first thing you have to do is make sure everyone's synchronized and has the exact same time because otherwise disasters can happen that's why we have standardized time that's true that in fact that the reason that we invented time zones was because of railroads that suddenly we had people who were moving so quickly through space that they needed a way to relate the time that they were in to the time of the place that they had left um, and so. also needed to make sure that they also wanted to make sure that everybody knew the exact time when trains were departing because different towns would have say, oh, it's it's 805 while another town would be eh, it's 830. So yeah. you have to standardize time so that everybody knows when to catch the train. Right. The last thing I want to talk about really quickly um, is the history of Grand Central since the teens. Um, it 
obviously has seen a lot and been through a lot over the decades. One of the most significant transitions, of course, is the fact that it no longer provides that long distance rail um, service because basically once we started, you know, once the jet age started uh, in the 50s, uh, you know, you would fly to California, you would fly to Chicago, you wouldn't take a train there anymore. So that service falls out of favor. And we end up with Grand Central being just a a local commuter um, suburban uh, terminal. The cleaning up of the area around Grand Central in the 80s paved the way for the actual cleanup and restoration of Grand Central in the 90s. And this tracks right alongside the economic history of New York when, you know, the 90s, it sort of comes roaring back um, under the Clintons and the general economic success of of the 90s. So um, this is when that ceiling gets cleaned. And it's where Grand Central, I think, returns to being um, a tourist destination. And one of the big things that they did was uh, to remove all the advertising. So there used to be all of um, these signs inside Grand Central that were, you know, sometimes some of them sort of just like billboards, like set up to advertise companies that didn't operate there. Um, and so they 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 abolished all of the signs. All of the signs had to go away. And paradoxically, at the same time, they made Grand Central more commercial, more profitable by adding this uh, cafeteria, basically, downstairs um, at the lower level terminal and also creating a lot more space for stores. So now Grand Central actually is more profitable. Um, it has all these uh spaces that are rented to restaurants and also to stores to shops it's become a big shopping destination and also as i mentioned earlier and dining destination a lot of people in the area go to grand central just to get lunch Um, there's a very good market inside um, that has uh, all different kinds of very overpriced gourmet foods Um, and so now it's it's definitely become more of a tourist destination because of that but the, the primary thing I want to emphasize is with them taking away the advertising, they really have allowed the architecture to shine once again. So you can stand in Grand Central Terminal. And as I mentioned earlier, in, instead of, you know, being only or or, primar- or just primarily a, uh, a transportation hub, it is now also a kind of public monument where you go there just to take in the architecture. Um, and so in that regard, it it is an invitation to actually stop and to slow down and to appreciate and to look around you. Um, And if nothing else, just to feel the space, which remember in New York is, is really uh, something special. (laughs) So um, to, to not feel claustrophobic, but to have that open concourse and to just feel yourself there with everybody else, with humanity who are, you know, they're all there taking in the view just like you. So um, it really is a, a wonderful place. It's on my my top list of things you have to see in New York if you come through for a visit. And if you're a New Yorker, you're probably only ever going um, unless you work in the area or you you know or, or live in the suburbs and are taking a commuter train. You probably just pass under it all the time through Grand Central Station um, on the four, five, six trains. So I encourage you to to you know hop off the subway and to go upstairs and check out the concourse or just to linger. Um, if you haven't done that in a while, it's a pretty special place and we're lucky to have it. As always, you can find images that we've discussed, pictures of the Transit Museum or Grand Central Terminal on our website, which is www.arthistory.today. We're also going to add some more fun facts about Grand Central that didn't make it into this episode. So if you want more factoids, feel free to check out the website. We also provide a lot of updates to stories, both on our website and on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash arthistorytoday. 
And we also invite you to follow us on Twitter. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at Art Hist Today. That's A R T H I S T T O D A Y. 